Good evening. Welcome. Uh, tonight we are going to be looking at the book of Jude, the small letter of Jude, all 25 verses. I uh, just want to let you know in terms of the next two weeks are going to be the final two that we're going to be doing before we take the summer break. Um, and we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation over the next two weeks. Uh, many people are terrified or at least mortified by the book of Revelation. They think it's uh, an impossibly difficult book to understand, but um, I'm pretty confident we'll be able to go through it in a way that will make it pretty understandable and uh, maybe, Lord willing, really increase your enjoyment of reading this book. So I want to take the intimidation factor away from the book of Revelation. Uh, it really has a pretty basic outline. Um, and I, I want to basically, and I personally know the secret metaphors of all the symbols and what they actually mean. Yes, the creatures that come out of the bottomless pit with long hair and, and wings and breastplates of iron are the beetles. So we, we got that out of the way, we can move on. And maybe it was the Rolling Stones, I don't know. Maybe. Anyway, but we're going to look at the book of Jude tonight. So um, let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll dig right in. Father, we ask that as we continue our study through the books of the Bible, that your Holy Spirit would continue to not only help us to understand in the simplest way what the Word says, but Lord, to also create, create in us a hunger and a desire to become students of it ourselves, that we would let its truth penetrate into our hearts, Lord, that we would escape the trap of simply being hearers, and that, Lord, the doing of your word would be something that would be easily understandable and attainable in our lives. We, we look to you for that grace, Lord, we, for you alone can grant it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may remain seated. Okay. Um, the book of Jude, it was a second century uh, church father, a fellow by the name of Origen, uh, during, who simply said of this book, he said, it's a book of few verses, yet it's full of mighty words of heavenly wisdom. And so we have to ask the question, of course, who was this man, Jude, that was so highly esteemed by the other church leaders of the first few centuries of the church? And his self-identification is somewhat modest. He begins in verse 1 to say, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jude is, a, is kind of a, a Greekized form of the Hebrew name Judas or Judas. And so his name biblically in the Gospels was referred to as Judas. A servant of Jesus Christ, simply a, a doulos, a, a slave of Christ. And he, then he adds, and a brother of James. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting because there are three, possibly four different individuals in the Gospels who have the name James. And the question becomes, which of these is the one to whom he's referring to? Well, the first James that's most notable is called James the Greater, who is James the Apostle. And he was the older brother of the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John, the Revelation, and the, the Epistles of John. Uh, he was a son of Zebedee. John and James, the son of De Zebedee. Uh, he was one of those closest associates of Jesus. There was kind of a, a, a triunity of individuals, a triad of individuals, James, John, and Peter, who were Jesus' closest associates. Um, and we're pretty absolutely certain this is not the James he's talking about. So there's a second James, the James who is the son of Alphaeus, the son of Mary. And he's referred to as James the Lesser. He is also one of the 12 apostles. And he is lesser in one regard, simply that we know less about him than we do the other James. In fact, we know very little about him, except that he was most likely the brother of Matthew. Because his father's name is Alphaeus, and Matthew's father's name was Alphaeus, so that Matthew or Levi uh, is probably the brother of this particular James. But beyond that, we know hardly anything, and, and it's not likely that he was the author, and certainly traditional accounts do not assign it to him. So we're left really with one very likely uh, candidate, and that's a man who is referred to as James the Just. Uh, James the Just is the author of the letter of James that we've studied a few weeks back, and he was the half-brother of Jesus, 
In other words, he was literally or physically parented by Joseph and Mary. Jesus would be a half-brother because he had a different father. Uh, you've probably heard of him called the Holy Spirit. And so as a consequence, they were half-brothers. And uh, he uh, essentially became the elder of the church of Jerusalem he was not a follower of Christ during Christ's earthly ministry. We're not told exactly when he converted, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Lord appeared to James. In fact, he's one of the first people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. Uh, whether that was the occasion of his conversion or not, we're not told. But nonetheless, he very quickly became a man of significant status within the early church. And of course, as I said, he was the author of the book of James that bears his name. As the elder of the church in Jerusalem, in his lifetime, he exerted tremendous influence. And we believe that Jude or Judas was his brother because we're told in, 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 in Mark's gospel in chapter 6, verse 3, when Jesus comes back to Nazareth and everybody's amazed by both his miracles and his words, they asked the question the citizens of Nazareth do, saying, isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? And so most commentators believe that Judas, referred to in Mark 6, is also Jude, the author of this particular book. So uh, there's pretty strong certainty of that. As to whom he was writing to, that's more perplexing because he simply refers twice in this letter to his dear friends. Ageptos in Greek literally means a, a beloved friend, somebody who's dearly beloved, very close. And it can refer to somebody of intimate personal relationship. But it's very likely that what this was is a circular letter. And by that we mean a letter that was written to be circulated amongst a number of churches and read. And so it's probably more of a general reference to the believers in the various churches that he is communicating with. Uh, even where it was written, we have no information. Uh, there's no clear indication other than the fact that the letter had wide circulation very early, especially in, in the Greco-Roman Empire. It was one that was uh, held in pretty high regard and esteem. Um, the date for the writing is someplace, and this is unusual because usually you can get pretty close dating, but someplace between 60 and 80 AD, which is like a 20-year span. And the question is, why would there be such a large time frame in which it could be written? And part of the reason is that the, it has some striking similarities with the letter of 2 Peter. In fact, in, in verse 18, Jude makes this statement. He says, uh, they said to you, speaking of the, uh, the uh, apostles, he says, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. Well, if you look at 2 Peter 3.3, 3, he says essentially the same thing. He says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. So the debate suddenly arises as which of these letters is quoting the other? Who's quoting who? Is Jude quoting Peter or is Peter quoting Jude? So, you know, if it was Peter, we know that Peter was uh, executed around 68 AD, so it had to be written earlier. If it was after that, it could have been written sometime later in that period. But uh, it seems most likely that Jude is quoting Peter. So I put the date further towards the period of 70 or 80 AD. And the reason I say that is because of something that Jude says in verse 17. He says, after referring to this quote about the scoffers that would come that the apostles had, had warned them about, he says, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus foretold. And then he goes on to speak about the scoffers that are becoming. So it seems to me pretty apparent that, that Jude is quoting Peter, that P, Second Peter is the older letter, Jude came later on. In a sense, what we find is that Peter in his second letter prophetically anticipates 
the coming of false teachers have, and having a negative effect upon the early church, whereas what Jude is recording is actually the historical fulfillment of that fact. And that's one of the things that stands out is that P, Jude is obviously addressing a problem that is current within the church at the moment that he's writing. Uh, this and, and the fact that jo, Jude quotes two apocryphal books is really one of the things that delayed its universal acceptance as part of the biblical canon. Um, some of the church fathers believed that Jude should be included in the canon early on. There were others who drug their feet, and again, because of these apocryphal quotes. Now, what is an apocryphal book? Apocryphal literally means something that has unknown or doubtful authorship. In other words, we find in, in some uh, Orthodox and Catholic Bibles, you'll find they have a whole section of books that aren't included in the uh, Protestant canon of scriptures, and it'll have there the Apocrypha. And Apocrypha is it's an interesting title because we know these books claim to have been authored by people who couldn't possibly have authored them. In other words, there's the two that he quotes in particular. One is called The Assumption of Moses, and the second one is called The Book of Enoch. And The Assumption of Moses purports to have been written by Moses, but the point is it's written in a later Greek style, which I don't think Moses was really into. Uh, and we, can, we can't really tell a whole lot about The Assumption of Moses because the only way we even know that it existed is because Origen, who I quoted, the second century church father, who I quoted earlier, is, makes reference to it and has this conversation about this phrase, this quote being included in the book of Jude. Other than that, we have no evidence or no, no extant copies of this particular book and know really very little about it. But in verse 9, we find that Jude makes this quote. He says, but even the archangel Michael when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, the other uh, quote is from the book of Enoch, which the earliest versions we know have written about 300 years before Christ. And uh, Again, we know it wasn't written by Enoch himself because, again, it's written in a later style Greek and it's much, much uh, newer in its origin or its history. But in verses 14 and 15, he says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, talking about these uh, false teachers. He says, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way, and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So because of my scholarly approach to this text, I think the focus of that quote is the ungodly. Um, obviously he states this four times over and over again, which is actually not exactly the way our most recent examples of the book of Enoch uh, reads which may indicate that it comes from a very, very ancient source, um, although we can't say for sure. But uh, what's interesting is that the fact that Jude quotes from these two widely read and very popular books in the day that he was writing uh, tells us that the people to whom he is writing considered these sources to be authoritative, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Jude viewed them as being inspired, but rather as inspirational. In a way, it would almost be like when I quote, you know, uh, Chuck Smith or, or Chuck Swindoll or, or Max Lucado or somebody like that, and I quote it because what they're saying has such biblical truth to it that you're quoting it, but I would never tell you this is scripture. That's why I would say this doesn't come out of the Bible. This comes out of this particular author, uh, David Roper or Eugene Peterson or whoever I might want to quote just to throw out a few of my favorite reads. But, um, and it's very possible that this is the very same way in which Jude is using it. Because it's interesting, the book of Enoch in particular is pretty evident. We still have a lot of record. In fact, we found even the book of Enoch was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date back to as far as two to three hundred years before the time of Christ. So um, 
we don't know exactly what the status was. We just know the Jews at this time did not see it as being Scripture, although they read it. They read it, they valued it, but they didn't uh, handle it or approach it as if it was the Word of God. Well, anyway, so why did Jude write this letter in the first place? Um, one really gets the impression pretty quickly that it was a very uh, rather hastily composed letter because he says in verse 3, he says, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, which seems to indicate that he wanted to talk about the doctrine of the gospel of grace, he said, I felt I had to urge you to write and to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. What's clear is that Jude was very alarmed by what was going on. And there was the influence of unidentified false brothers, false teachers uh, who were influencing the churches in an unhealthy way. He said, goes on to say in verse 4, he says, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago secretly slipped in among you. I love the way the New Laban translation puts it. They have wormed their way in by trickery and cunning. Now, wormed their way in. Uh, I just thought I'd throw up this picture just to, be, to give a graphic input. <laughs> because uh, here, what, what this is is actually a hookworm that has gotten into somebody's system and is living inside of their body. And unattended, eventually it will kill you. And that's kind of the idea of false doctrine, that false doctrine oftentimes comes as a, a small deviation that's allowed, but it spreads quickly and in the end, it can be not only toxic, but it can be very deadly. Now, we're not told any more about what these false doctrines were specifically or where they came from. We're not given the name of a particular uh, group of people. But we are told what the content of the doctrine was essentially. And what Jude says is they changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign Lord. Now, we've talked in past weeks about the nature of Gnostic Christianity, and, and, and significantly, the, what he's talking about here bears resemblance to the way that Gnostic Christianity began to affect the early church. Uh, we talked about how that the Gnostics believed that matter was evil, but in a con convoluted sort of way, they therefore said, therefore, what I do with my body is irrelevant so that there's no sin to be deal, dealt with because Jesus also didn't redeem us from our sins. He just was a great moral teacher who taught us the way to, uh, you know, basically psychic elevation so that we can arise to greater planes, planes of revelation. It's almost like a, a kind of a new age Christianity. Uh, we call that kind of Christianity new age Christianity, but it's been around for a long time. It's so long, it has heart disease. You know, and the point is that what it does is it gives people the permission to really lay aside restraints. It essentially says, well, the grace of God means that I can kind of do whatever I want to do. And secondly, that it really contradicts or denies who Jesus is and assigns him to a lower place in terms of our life. And we don't know exactly how this was communicated. Obviously, the readers were well familiar of the message that was being shared. And the sad thing is, as it always is the case, it was attractive. People were drawn to it. I mean, you know, many times in the Christian life, as we struggle against uh, living for the Lord or against the, the, the desires and temptations of the world and, and the challenges of the faith life, it's easy to have somebody come and say, you know, you really, you don't have to struggle. You can just kind of glide and abide. Just go with the flow. Let, you know, don't worry about it. God will forgive you. And, and it's amazing because I've had people come to me at, over the years and say things like, well, I know that the Bible says I shouldn't get a divorce, but God knows my needs and understands my problems. Well, I know we shouldn't be living together outside of marriage, but you know, uh, we're just human and I know that God will forgive me and God understands. And really that's an abuse of the doctrine of grace. Because one of the things that we studied back in Titus, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, for the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. 
and live soberly and righteously, righteously in this present world. So that if God's grace is active in my life, it is not inducing me or giving me permission to live any way I want, but it's having the opposite uh, redemptive effect upon my life that I desire to live for God as a demonstration or really an expression of the fact that I love God. I don't want to do anything that's going to become a wall between me and fellowship with God. So that on one hand, we want to resist the temptation towards legalism, which becomes a series of rules and regulations that we follow almost like some kind of spiritual checklist to prove that we're worthy of being loved by God because we're never worthy and we'll never be able to keep the list. I don't remember how you may be checking it off and checking it twice, but you're never going to be able to say to God, I've been, you know, nice and not naughty. You're going to always flunk the test. But what we do know is that the grace of God impels me to desire to follow the, the pattern of Jesus and the leadership of the Holy Spirit in my life. And that pattern is always going to be towards holiness, not towards unholiness, or in this case, as he describes it, as ungodliness. Well, Judas, as I said, is, is clearly alarmed because he said, these people have slipped in to your midst. And it, 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 it really describes a kind of surreptitious skullduggery that's going on here. They've come in posing to be uh, one of you, but they really have a very different agenda. And he goes on to say that the effect of it is that they divide you. In verse 19, he said, these are the men who divide you. And, uh, and understandably so, because you have people who are embracing this theology that gives them permission to live without restraint, and there are others who are saying, no, this isn't right. And it's cre it creates a real stress. Now, thank God there were people who were standing up and saying, no, that's false teaching. But nonetheless, instead of there being harmony within the church, False doctrine that's allowed to, to proliferate always leads to divisiveness. It always divides the believers. And basically, as verse 10, he said, of these men, he said, the things that they're doing are the very things that destroy them. I would add, parenthetically, that they're the things that also destroy us. So that Jude's exhortation in this for us is that his readers would find their own voice and proclaim the truth to fight a battle against these false doctrines, or as he put it, to contend earnestly for their faith, which seems to me to suggest that maybe the response had been far too passive, basically not really wanting to get into the strife. And I would say that that's not an uncommon response even today. That when we find that, that people are promoting false doctrine, it's almost like uh, we don't want to be perceived as not being nice, and so we don't challenge things that aren't true. Sometimes because we know the person will react very negatively. But the same thing, the same thing, or the, the obligation remains for us as followers of Christ, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, to speak the truth in love. That we need to be willing to say, but I don't believe that. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the truth as it's proclaimed by Christ. And to be kind of forward in that assertiveness. Granted, there will be people who will react very negatively against that because they literally hate the Bible, they hate Jesus. But most people will be surprised because all they've heard is the falsehood. They've never had anybody really clarify them. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible says. It's funny to me I, I, how sometimes people who don't know what they're talking about can assert their positions so authoritatively. Many years ago, I, I actually when I was, I was having, <laughs> name dropper here, I was actually having breakfast with Chuck Smith and we were having this conversation about some biblical thing. We, you know, I got the chance to ask him questions, so I'm pumping him with 99 questions. And as we get up to leave, this gentleman in the booth next to us and says, oh, by the way, I would just like to tell you that if you guys had ever read the Bible in the original Sanskrit, you'd realize that you have it all wrong. <laughs> I mean, you know, you have to understand, Sanskrit was ancient Mesopotamia. It's, it was old 3,000 years before the Bible's even written. So, I mean, it's like, 
what are you even talking about? Sanskrit. It was a dead language by 2,000 years, by the time the Bible was even composed. It's just such a nonsense statement, and yet this man asserted it with such confidence. And I thought to myself at the moment, no, I'm not going to say anything. This guy is so far over the edge, it's not even worth going there. We'll be here all day. But secondly, it's amazing because I wonder how many people he made that kind of statement to who said, oh, yeah, really? Now, you may say, who could be that stupid? All the people who read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. You know, that's how, all, who don't know any different, and they read the stuff that he says in there, and it's absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Along with Michael Bajant and Lincoln and, and uh, Elaine Pagels and all these people who write about the Gnostic Gospels and all this kind of stuff. It's palpably nonsense what these people say. In fact, they have to know themselves it's nonsense since they busily plagiarize each other uh, in their, letter, their writings anyway. They don't even do research. They steal from one another. But the whole point is that there are people out there that are promoting stuff who don't know what they're talking about. And I know some of you are saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I apologize for that. <laughs> but I'm just simply saying, you don't need to know everything that's wrong, but you do need to know what the Bible does actually say. And if you read the Bible and read it enough and long enough, you will know what it says and you'll be able to say to people quite authoritatively, well, that's not actually what the Bible says. And so when, you know, as my beloved uncle, who was a good Christian man, but said to me one time after I first got saved and I showed up with my bells, bangles, long hair and beads and barefoot, and he said, you know, godliness, cleanliness is next to godliness. And I informed him, I showered. But the point was that it doesn't say that anyplace. <laughs> People can quote things even well-meaning that aren't biblical references, that God doesn't evaluate the worth of a soul by how well-scrubbed they are. And so it's important for us that we know what the Bible says, and secondly, that we speak up. So that when we look at this letter structurally, there are really kind of two main parts to this simple little letter. But the first part is why we should confront false teachers or people who are saying things that aren't true, why we should do it, and secondly, how we should confront them. And those can be useful bits of advice because I think that there probably has been no time in the history of the world where we are more challenged in this regard than we are today. You know, it's interesting that every time there comes a new technology for communication, uh, not only is it an opportunity for good stuff to proliferate, it's also an opportunity for bad stuff to proliferate, and it seems like the bad stuff always has the edge. So whether you're talking about the development of the printing press, and not only was there the, the first book that was ever printed was the Bible, but soon afterwards, so was everything that the Greek philosophers had ever written, a lot of which was its own set of nonsense. And it became competitive with the scriptures. And even in our today, now you can go on the internet, and I'm amazed at by the stuff that's there. And, and often I have people send me information saying, did you know? And they'll send me something, and I'm just going, really, are you serious? Um, because, you know, one of the things that I know for sure, you can't print it, and you certainly can't put it on the internet if it's not true. <laughs> I know that for a fact. You can't do that because there's some kind of internet police out there that makes sure, well, that's the whole point. How do, therefore, do we navigate through all this proliferation, this, this cascading tsunami of data and information? We know the Word of God. If we know the Word of God, one of the things, going back to, 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 to Timothy, Paul said, rightly divide the Word of truth. And if I know what the Word of truth is, I can rightly divide the stuff that I read, the stuff I encounter. That I may not know exactly why it's wrong, but many times I can read it and say, you know, this doesn't have the ring of truth to it. There's something that just doesn't add up with what I know to be true of Jesus. And if you know the scriptures, you will come to understand the nature and the heart of God. You'll understand his personality because that's what the Bible does. It reveals God's personality, who he is. This is who I am. And as you read it, you'll begin to understand who he is. And when something comes to you that doesn't line up with who he is, you will recognize it immediately. Well, 
What is the key verse? Well, nobody really argues about it. This is one of the few books in which there's absolutely total agreement as to what the key verse of this book is, and it's one I've already mentioned, verse 3, where he says, I urge you to earnestly contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. I love what J.B. Phillips put it. He says, <laughs> he says, uh, make my letter, I, am com- I felt compelled to make my letter to you an earnest appeal to put up a real fight for the faith. Or as Peterson put it, he says, I write insisting, begging that you fight with everything you have in you for this faith entrusted to you as a gift to guard and to cherish. Now, these paraphrased versions really give a strong emphasis to the importance and the emotion behind the challenge. And that actually does capture the original much more closely than some of the more, uh, actually what we might call word-for-word translations because sometimes word-for-word doesn't really grasp the depth of the language that was far more expressive than our English language is. But secondly, I think it's important that he says that this is a faith that was entrusted to us once and for all. In other words, he's saying essentially that there's no amendment to the biblical doctrine. There's no new revelation. I remember one television preacher, very popular gentleman at the time, and um, he, he had a message where he said, you know, when you come here, you don't come to hear old truth, you come to hear new truth. Now right away I just realized there is no new truth. <laughs> Just Jesus the same today, he's the same yesterday, he's the same forever. And yet this guy was able to say this and then people perked up their ears and go, oh, give us new truth. No, the Bible says we need to remind people of what the Bible says. There is new, new, no new truth. There can be new understandings in terms of how it applies to my life. As a man who's living in the 21st century, understanding the Word of God in the context of my day-to-day life is different than somebody who lived in the 19th, 18th, 15th, 1st century because they have, we have different dynamics and different issues. You know, if you did a Bible study in the 1st century about the dangers of the Internet, you probably wouldn't have had much of listening. But the whole point is that there's, there's a new sense in the sense that we have to begin to adjust our understandings or the application of the Word of God to new contexts and situations. But the Word never changes. The message never changes. Sometimes we may have ch- take a different methodology, but it never changes in terms of the message that we're trying to communicate. This is a Word that is entrusted to us, which implies simply that God, by giving us His Word, has entrusted something to our care, and that's why Paul said to Timothy, entrust the scriptures or the teaching of the word to those who will not alter the form of sound doctrine. They won't change the form of doctrine. They won't play with it and massage it to fit around things that they find uncomfortable or difficult but they will literally try to understand it and apply it to their life in the most measurable and practical way. Well, let's take, in the few minutes we have left, let's look at basically these two major sections. The first section I've just simply an outline called to the instruction to inform them, um, inform them about these false teachers. What are they doing? Well, it says, as we read before, that they are men, in verse 4, he says, who have secretly slipped in among you. And then he defines their character. He says they're godless men. Now, what does the word godless mean? It means their course of life does not factor in God. That's all it means. That godlessness or ungodliness is simply living life based upon uh, decisions or, or measurements that has nothing to do with God. So that there are a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, who live technically ungodly lives. They're, they're not worshiping idols, they're not bowing down to Satan, but nonetheless they make life decisions without regard to the will of God. They make it based upon their best estimation of the situation in front of them. And here again I, I, I repeat that how do we not do that? It's by basically allowing the Word of God, as Colossians says, to dwell in you richly. 
The more time you spend in the scriptures, the more it will saturate your thought processes and the more you will begin to think biblically. Now, it's sad because the Barna Research Group, you know, uh, about 10 years ago, did a study of where Christians in America are at in terms of their theology. And he came to the conclusion, Barna said in his article summarizing their findings, that America is a biblically illiterate culture. And the church is, for the most part, biblically illiterate. Uh, in fact, over an eight basic uh, fundamental theological positions or doctrines, they found that only 9% agreed with them. And they were, you know, really abstract doctrines, things like Jesus is the Son of God, the only way to heaven, you must be born again, born of a virgin birth, uh, the Bible is the word of God, heaven, hell, you know, some of those strange <laughs> doctrines that, in other words, they found that 81% of professing Christians would disagree with at least one, if not more, of those particular positions that define what is historically Christian faith. And so it's not surprising that we see the, the culture of the church deteriorate and take on what I call a, a kind of an aberrant hybridization. It's, it's, it becomes something very different and not necessarily recognizable. And so what he's saying is you have to understand that these are men who are not governing lives or their decisions by what God says but they are those, again, who change the grace of God to give them permission to engage in immorality. In fact, in verse 8, he says, these dreamers, <laughs> it's interesting, I, I love the, what we call the pejorative language of this text. I mean, the, he just slams these guys without, without mercy. He basically calls them dreamers, these guys who are living in their own fantasy world, in other words. He says, they pollute their own bodies. Remember Paul said that sexual immorality is a sin against your own body? He says they're polluting their own bodies. They reject authority, referring to God's authority over their life. There's an inherent rebelliousness, and they slander celestial beings. Uh, I'll confess, I'm not quite sure what that means exactly. But nonetheless, they, they speak, in other words, probably referring to uh, they arrogate to themselves a position of revelation and, and, and probably talk of having visions uh, of angels and other things that they don't really have. Uh, the years ago, I remember, uh, many years ago, there was a book uh, written called Angels on Assignment, and this pastor wrote this entire book about these visitations that he had from angels. And it was an interesting read, particularly the parts that weren't biblical. And so, you know, I, I couldn't argue whether or not the angels had visited him, but one thing I am sure, they probably weren't all uh, godly angels. They, they may have been other kinds of angels. But that may be the kind of thing that he's referring to here. But he goes on, he says, they speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. In other words, they openly criticize things that they don't understand, which is kind of how people do engage. When we hear something that we don't understand, we assume that we understand and then we criticize it. When he says they don't even understand the things that they're criticizing, but ultimately he said, what is the bottom line motivation behind what they do? He said, they have rushed for profit. They have found a way in which they can enrich themselves, that Simon Magnus type of spirit that was spoken of in chapter 8 of the book of Acts. So who they really are, he says, in verse 10 he calls them unreasoning animals. Not that they were animalistic, but their logic is purely human or carnal. They only think in terms of the human mind. He calls these men in verse 12, he says, these men are blemishes at your love feasts. Uh, a whole list of interesting metaphors. They're shepherds or false shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds who are without rain. Uh, autumn trees, in other words, when you talk about fruit-bearing fruit trees in the autumn, they lose their leaves, they have no fruit. In other words, they promote themselves as being a benefit, but they have nothing to offer. He says they are twice dead or literally doubly dead. They were more dead than they were before they ever professed to know Christ. 
They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars in the blackest darkness. That, and he says they are, and then he goes on to talk about their character. They're ungodly, they're grumblers, they're fault finders, they follow their own evil desires, they boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. They're scoffers. These men are who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. So we might wonder how in the world did these guys actually gain a listening? He's describing them in such harsh terms. Well, what we have to understand is that he's talking about what God revealed about their hearts, not how they looked on the exterior. As he goes into verse 17, and I'll go into that a bit more in a moment, he says to them, though you already know all this, I want to remind you. And there's five things that he goes on to remind them. And the first one is he reminds them that there is consequences to their behavior that God judges sin. And he used the example of those who came out of Egypt and who rebelled and they died in the wilderness. He talks about the angels who rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and he also mentions the way of Cain, the, way, the error of Balaam and Korah's rebellion. All of them led to the destruction and his point is really simple. That even though these guys are promising you liberty, as Peter put it in his second letter, really what they're going to lead you into is slavery, bondage, and ultimately destruction. But secondly, he says, remind them to basically, I would say, to stay in the word of God and prayer. In verse 20, he says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as long as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you into eternal life. The thirdly, he says, remind them to be merciful to those who doubt. In other words, how do I deal with somebody who's become entangled in a false theology? Well, he says, you start by being merciful to them. Because there's an interesting transition that every victimizer always began as a victim. And so the point is that when you engage somebody, you have to find, is this somebody who has just been deceived or have they graduated into becoming a deceiver? Because somebody's just simply deceived, then be gracious and merciful to them and lead them carefully out of their error and into the truth. On the other hand, he tells us in other letters that when we're dealing with somebody who is a hardened deceiver, then there's only one approach, and that is to expel them from the fellowship. So he tells us, be merciful to those who are doubting, snatch others from the fire and save them to the others show mercy. And then fourthly, he says, remind them to live circumspectly. He said, live with, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupted flesh. That there, one of the marks of godliness is it says you hate evil. You aren't attracted to it. You don't find it something you desire. You hate it. Not because you're just being hateful, but because you recognize that where this leads. It's interesting, for example, in Proverbs, Solomon says, you know, that we should rebuke a backbiting tongue. Well, nobody likes the idea of being rebuked, but why do we do that? Because the backbiting tongue, the slanderous tongue, ends up creating harm for everybody. It doesn't do good so that you need to not hate the person who may be doing the slander, but you should hate the slander itself and address it as something that we need to repent of and turn away from. And it's true of every kind of thing in our life, that we hate what these things do to us. So that old uh, cliche that sometimes become kind of hackneyed, it's used so much, but I think it's still very true that you love the sinner, but you hate the sin. The problem we have oftentimes is distinguishing between the two and, and, and kind of reacting incorrectly. The point is that we should never hate anybody. We should never see anybody as being someone who should be crushed by our verbal assaults or arguments, but at the same time, we need to recognize that what false doctrine does and what ungodly behavior does is it destroys the people who partake in it. And so that should matter to you. That, that should be something that you're concerned about. And then finally, he says, and fifthly, that they should remind them to be to trust in God. This is kind of what we call the, the doxology or the closing statement of praise 
But it's really about putting our faith in God when he says, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to prevent, present you from his glorious presence without fault and without great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. It's, it may seem almost like liturgical at the end of the letter to say something. It's almost like he's writing this letter and he has to end it with some kind of formal statement about God. But there's something very important, I think, for us to note in this last statement. And that's simply that it is God who keeps us from falling into error and sin. It's not we who keep ourselves. So how am I supposed to be kept by God? And that's really what it comes down to. What is the motive of my heart when I pray, when I read, when I worship? Because if my desire is to walk with God, then God is going to make me aware of those things that are going to hinder that progress in my life. When I see people who get caught up in sin, uh, it's because they wanted to, not because they couldn't help themselves. They really just wanted to. And as much as we would like to kind of say it's not my fault, I couldn't help myself, or whatever blame shifting we try to engage in, the reality is that when we choose to do something that we know clearly God has said no to, it's because we've decided that disobedience has more value than obedience. And there, there's no, and unless, as long as you rationalize it some other way, you're going to be vulnerable. But when you look at this and saying, what I'm doing now is I'm allowing myself to nurture an appetite that isn't healthy. So how do you stop thinking bad thoughts? Change the subject. <laughs> you know, you simply sit back and say, Jesus, help me not to go there in my mind whether it be lust or envy or hatred or jealousy or bitterness or resentment or malice, how do you overcome these strong, powerful passions that can come into your life? And the answer is you lift up your eyes to heaven and you say, Jesus, deliver me from what I'm doing right now. I know that you do not want me to do this. I know you don't want my mind to be there. You look to him, he will respond and he will keep you from going down that path. But it's really, at the end of the day, as James told us, God doesn't tempt any man with evil. We are tempted when we are drawn away by our own lusts and we are enticed. That we essentially have to make a decision. I remember years ago I heard James Dobson talking about extramarital affairs and I could never find the research on this. If you ever find it, I would love to find it. But he said, they have found that when a person falls into adultery, that there are 12 distinct steps that they go down before they finally commit the sin. In other words, 12 separate decisions that they have to make. Uh, you basically, you know, warning signals, red lights, barricades, barriers that, that God will put in a person's way saying, stop, turn around, don't go there, this is wrong. And he says, and you have to choose to plow right through all of that in order to uh, fall into that transgression so that nobody can say, I couldn't help myself. No, you, you could have helped yourself several times, but each barrier you pass, it gets more difficult. The longer I entertain things that God says, don't go there, the harder it is going to be to extricate myself from that because I am creating a pattern, I'm creating a furrow, a pathway in my life that is becoming more familiar. And that's the danger. You see, when we, have, when we come to Christ and we have certain sin, sinful behaviors that became our area of expertise, we all had them. We all had this besetting sin, as the writer of Hebrews put it, that was the thing that kind of characterized the driving passion of our life. And we come to Christ and he sets us free. The greatest temptation is the fact that I know that path so well and I've trodden it so many times, it is difficult to step back and go, that's unfamiliar territory. And that's the danger is when we come to things that are unfamiliar to us and we know that God says don't go there and we go there anyway. We're starting to create a path. We're, we're allowing a hookworm to infect our foot and over time it will work its way. It's amazing, a hookworm within 24 hours can multiply its larva by 30,000 eggs that begin to spread through your body. It's pretty nasty stuff. 
but not as nasty as sin. Not as nasty as sin. Na sin is significantly more toxic and more deadly. And that's why Adam and Eve died when they transgressed against God, that in sin entered in. Sin became the toxin that killed humanity and continues to kill humanity. It's, it's interesting to me because you, as I listen to politicians and other people talking about the things that they're going to do if we just vote them into office and the wonderful changes that will come into our world. And I think to myself, the Bible says things will get worse and worse, not better and better. <laughs> it's just going to get worse. Because why? There's something about the sinful nature of man that no matter how great a thing is, we will take it to something that is destructive. We will, we will carry it. The only protection we have against that is yielding to the Spirit of God in our life. And how do we do it? It's not by determining, I'm never going to do that. Believe me, that's almost like giving God a dare. The moment you sit there and say, I'm going to never do that, it's, it's like you've already sealed your fate because you're trusting in your own ability to keep yourself. No, Jude says, he will keep you. But how does he keep you? By you turning to him and saying, Lord, I need you to keep me. I need you to deliver me. I need you to change me. So the next time you and your wife begin to get in an argument and you begin to find, feel this anger rising up inside of you, and I'm not going to identify which one of you it's coming from, but nonetheless, it begins to rise up inside of you. What do you do at that moment? You step back and go, Jesus, I'm about to lose my cool here, and I'll probably do and say something that not only will I regret, but I will have to pay for for a long time. So stop me right now, Jesus. He will. He will. Just ask. He said, I'll do it for you. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that uh, as we reflect upon this book, that you would help us to become those who contend for the faith, not simply in dealing with false teachers and people who are espousing things that aren't true, but maybe even more practically on a day-to-day -day level, that we would contend for the truth of the faith of God in our own lives personally. That we would become mindful of the things that we allow ourselves to hear and, and the things we allow ourselves to think and even the things that we may allow ourselves to say. That, Lord, we would begin to, to be, put guards on our, our minds and on our ears and on our mouths, that when we hear things that we know contradict the word of God, Lord, that we would note that in our mind and reject that, that when we are thinking things that we know are not consistent with what you, your word says, that we would catch ourselves, we'd bring those thoughts into the captivity of Christ, even when we say things that, that come out of our mouths that we know are not true or they're not of you, that we would acknowledge that and and ask you for forgiveness and ask anybody who's been victimized by it to hear it to forgive us for what we just said. Lord, help us to put that guard on our life that we would see that we're always to be contending for our faith earnestly. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand as we close with worship together?